All right, welcome to East Lake. My name is Brent. I'm uh, typically the teaching pastor, but we've got a special guest with us today. Three years ago, I uh, made a phone call over to Dr. Blaine Charette. It, uh, he was a, a professor at Northwest University. I had undergraduate classes with him as well as uh, graduate classes. He's the professor of New Testament theology there, super, super uh, brainy and smart. You'll, you'll see that in just a few minutes. And I knew I wanted to come have him come over and do a, uh, like a Friday night East Lake U type thing and then speak on a Sunday for me. And uh, so we called him up. He agreed to do so and come over and do this. Now, <clears throat> there's, there's always been something within human nature that, like, is desiring of some sort of a sign from God, whether it's, am I supposed to take this job? If I am, have them call me back. Am I supposed to date this girl? If so, let her text back within a certain time frame or something like that, right? We're always craving some sort of divine sign. And it shows up in the biblical narrative as well. You've got Gideon putting out a fleece, um, and you've got people who, like, God's been giving them signs, and they just can't seem to see it. And you're like, how did you miss all of these signs that you're not supposed to do this thing? Um, so, for instance, Samson, right, um, he's dating the this girl Delilah, it's bad news, and he shouldn't be doing this. And she keeps waking him up like the Philistines are here. And, and then he, you know, he's able to kind of beat everybody up and kind of move on. But this happens repeatedly, and he can't seem to, he can't seem to learn. Like, you, you just read this, and you think, how could you miss it? How could you be so blind? How could you be some, um, so, so passive to this idea that God doesn't want you to do this thing? Um, so three years ago, we invited Blaine to come over and speak. Friday night, um, he did. He did a vocation uh, talk in, in East Lake U. Saturday, we told him there's this great town called Walla Walla with a bunch of cool wineries and eateries, and we're going to take you over to one of our favorite downtown areas. We'll walk the downtowns, spend some time together Saturday, drive back, and then have you speak on Sunday. As many as you know, December of 2016, we got in a car accident on the way back, uh, and uh, it, was, it was a bad deal. I was in the hospital for, for a while. Blaine was, what you may not know, was Blaine was in the car with me, not only in the car with me, in the passenger seat in the front. As I'm in the driver's seat, we had four other people in the car. This is a picture of Blaine after I ran into the back of a semi with cruise control on 50 because um, the tra traffic was stopped and it was uh, blinded by the light, uh, which we'll talk about. He's talking about that in a little bit. So it was a biblical kind of. Anyways, uh, Highway 12, Dangerous Highway, whatever. Uh, we ran into the back of the semi. We were stuck like this for about an hour and a half. Kylie was in the back, had gotten out and had taken this picture of Blaine. I don't know if you can tell, he's smiling in this photo, you guys. He's like, hey, it's okay. He's Canadian, so you kind of get this. Hey, it's okay, mate. You know, all that kind of mate. I just said mate. He doesn't say mate, but he's so kind uh, to to be like, this is no big deal. Absolutely, I like everything in my body being, you know, crushed or whatever. Um, and then, so that happened. Uh, that was 2016. I didn't even try and attempt to call him in 2017 because I just uh, I didn't want to put him in an awkward spot to be like, no, Brent, I'm not coming over. 2018, towards the end of the fall, I said, hey, would you come over? We scheduled it for uh, uh, February of this year, to January, February of this year. And I don't know if you remember like this winter, but it wasn't great. Um, and so he was supposed to come. I got a call on Saturday, Friday or Saturday from him saying, Alaska Airlines just called me and they said it's too dangerous to fly. We were grounding all flights out of Seattle. The best they can do is they can get me there Sunday at 1130. And we're like, well, that clearly doesn't work for what we're trying to do. Uh, so that's not going to work. So literally, a huge car accident and then a multi-million dollar airline company going, we don't think it's safe to get you there. 
it's like Samson. I don't know how you missed the signs that you're not supposed to be here. And yet he, he said yes and is still here. And guys, we survived the weekend together. I drove so safe all weekend long. I stopped at every yellow light. Um, we, uh, I actually gave him the keys to my car. He'd be like, you should drive. Don't let me drive. Uh, and, and he made it, and he's with me. So third time's a charm. This has been almost three years in coming. But please, ladies and gentlemen, would you welcome my friend and professor at Northwest University, Dr. Blaine Charette. Thank you. Great. Yo, know, it's nice to be here. Um, you know, as I recall that, you know, Kylie sent me a, a copy of that picture you guys just saw, and um, I posted that on my Facebook page, and I remember, I think it's the caption, as I recall, I'm a big Monty Python fan, so I think at that time I was sort of internally in my head singing that song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, it's one of those moments where you couldn't help but smile because it just seemed, I mean, kind of shock immediately followed by elation that nobody's dead. But um, anyways, and that kind of ties in quite well with what we are going to be talking about to a certain extent. I want to look at these, um, the section out of 2 Corinthians. You know, what we're going to be doing is sort of a little bit of a, a large view thing. You know, whenever I'm teaching, I, one thing I always emphasize with my students is, you know, context, context, context. Uh, the only way to really understand scripture in that micro level is to see text within a much more broader kind of macro level. So what we'll do is we'll start off by looking at a, a, a pretty important text of Paul's in 2 Corinthians. The extended passage starts in chapter 3, goes into chapter 4. I'm not going to read the entire section. What I've done is sort of pulled out different bits. But let's start by reading that. And as we look at that, I want, I'll draw attention to certain terms, certain words that we will come back to as we try to kind of understand better what Paul's getting at in this uh, section of 2 Corinthians. So let's look at this first bit, chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, uh, I'm trying to read my writing here, all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord, though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Okay, uh, a few, just a few terms to pick up here. Well, we, I did mention the first sermon, but even freedom is kind of important here. You know, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, which kind of ties with glory. You know, that there's always certain kind of theological terms that I think a lot of times people don't really, uh, they're kind of very abstract. I think glory would be a good example of that. One way to help you kind of understand this idea of glory is oftentimes throughout the Bible, it's tied to the idea of kingship and rule, okay? So a king is sort of cloaked in glory, okay? So glory has to do with kind of the resplendence that goes with authority and rule. But in the Bible, it's always attached to God's rule, and that's where freedom comes in. Um, you know, one thing, you know, it's interesting, Brent and I are reading this book together. I mean, we hadn't planned on this. It's just sort of an interesting coincidence that we ended up we were reading the same book. 
But part of a, a theme of that book, it, it, it deals a lot with political issues, but how oftentimes in our fallen world, rule and governance, and think of ancient kingdoms, it's oftentimes about oppression. That oftentimes the way that humans, fallen humans, exercise rule, it leads to oppression. God's glory, God's rule always leads to freedom. And that's certainly a big thing for Paul. As Paul unpacks what it means to live in the kingdom of God, it is about freedom. Okay, So, so freedom, glory, transformed. That's another very important concept we're going to be looking at later. And then image. Okay, moving forward to um, the next uh, snippet here, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But it's interesting there, people are blind. We'll look a little bit later at that whole concept of, uh, yeah, I was kind of joking in the first service how this light here is kind of, you know, I, I, I totally, you know, in those, uh, you know, in movies when they've got a s- criminal or a spy and they put them in a dark room with a bright light, I'm about ready to confess to anything you might accuse me of. So, uh, but yeah, it's not, it doesn't seem as intense as uh, the first time. <laughs> but anyways, uh, but, but yeah, but how, um, you know, the God of this world blinds people. So they don't really see what God is all about let alone what God has done through Christ. Okay, so we'll kind of pick up on that a little bit later. And then finally, the third section, this is all part of an extended discussion of Paul's. When we come to 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10, keep in mind this is all one passage, but I just didn't want to go through the whole thing, just to pick out the highlights. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Okay. But again, note here this this concept of clay jars, in particular a treasure within this clay jars, okay? And Paul talking about, you know, these afflictions, but this hope he has within, in the face of all of these setbacks he's experienced in life, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. But anyways, as I mentioned before, what I like to do when I teach, what I like to do even when I preach is to try to put things within as broad a perspective as possible. Okay, as I mentioned before, you know, context is so crucial. Uh, you know, the other last night over at Brenton Kiley's, we we're talking a little bit about inspiration, and um, you know, Paul makes that famous statement that you know all Scripture is God breathed. Okay. That does mean even down to the kind of the details of Scripture. But I think there's also some emphasis in all Scripture. We need, we need to see the totality of Scripture. Because oftentimes what happens is people get the wrong idea of Scripture. Or, you know, think of people, you know, cults that arise out of Christianity. Oftentimes they zero in on a particular passage or a particular topic or theme, and they kind of run with that. 
what they're doing with that use of scripture isn't inspired, obviously, because it's not referencing the whole, the totality. So the real scripture really becomes more inspired, more powerful when we see it in this big picture kind of way. You know, think of, um, we've all had that experience where maybe somebody invited you to a new restaurant you'd never gone to before. So you go to the website and there's always that little kind of maybe Google map, you know, in there on their web page just to help you find there. But usually when you look first at that map, it's just the street level, just the, you know, the immediate neighborhood of that restaurant. And yeah, I live in Seattle, so oftentimes, I don't know every street in Seattle. So what do you do? You click on that Google map and then you kind of expand the map until finally you get a context of where that restaurant is located. And you think, okay, that's the part of the city that restaurant's in. You, know, you get, need to get back into the detail again when you're actually driving there because you want to get park in front of the restaurant. But you need that kind of larger perspective. And the same way as scripture, we're always dealing with individual texts, but the best we can fit those texts into a larger context, the better. You know, if I can brag a little bit about Brent, um, one thing that impresses me about Brent, and we've been, you know, we've known each other for quite a few years, and as he mentioned before, I first came to know Brent as a student, and then now as a, a friend, and now as someone who pastors this church. One thing that always impressed me about Brent is his curiosity and the fact that he is somebody who reads broadly and widely. You know, as I, I mentioned, it's kind of an interesting coincidence that we just happened to find that we were both reading the same. And, and what's interesting, what I find so impressive is this book, I kind of have to read, I have to kind of keep up. You know, I'm a New Testament scholar, so it's kind of part of my job to keep up on what's new. So there's this new book on the book of Romans that just came out. There's kind of a lot of... Uh, a lot of buzz about it. So, you know, as soon as it, it was just released end of May, early June, and I was really impressed that I'm not even finished reading it. Brent's already finished reading it. And then just last night, we were talking about other things, and Brent kind of impresses me, that kind of breadth of knowledge, which is important because as you're preaching, as you're teaching, you know, as you're trying to help other people understand their faith better, the broader perspective you can bring to things, the better. Okay. And the reason for that is that we all live out our own individual stories, okay? But we're going to be more successful as believers if we can connect our individual stories into the biblical narrative, into the Jesus narrative, into the story of Israel, you know, whatever, you know, Brent mentioned, you know, the Samson narrative. You know, the more we understand these narratives, they, they give us a lot of insight into even how to live our own lives more effectively. And that's why Paul, that's why Paul's ultimately hopeful here. You could look at this passage, and he says some things that, on the face of it, are pretty pessimistic. I mean, look at those words again. We are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. Okay, we carry in our bodies the death of Jesus. I mean, that really sounds like a real downer, okay? I mean, it's like, you know, Paul, you know, be on an opiate soon or something. Um, but note what, every one of those statements he couples with something else, doesn't he? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken struck down, but not destroyed. We do carry in our bodies the death of Jesus, but why? So that the life of Jesus might also be visible in our bodies, okay? So he has this 
Paul has this hope that just isn't going to be defeated, okay? Paul's life has, is probably more troubling. He probably goes through a lot more trouble than many of us are going to experience in life, and yet he has this buoyancy of hope. And where does that come from? It comes from because he can connect his personal story to this larger biblical story. And that constantly reminds him of who he is in God's plan, how he fits into the story of Christ, that, that kind of thing. And that's ultimately where his hope resides. And I think we can learn something from that. When, you know, because we're going to have, you know, life oftentimes does throw us a lot of difficulties. And at those moments, it's very important that we that we're aware of that broad story so that we can begin to make sense of our lives. We, you know, we sometimes just have the street view of our life. We need to see our lives within that much broader context of God's story and the story of God's people. So the place really, there's probably no place better to begin than at the beginning. So if you go right back to the beginning, as you may be aware of, in Genesis, at the very beginning of Genesis, we actually have two separate creation accounts. And there's a reason why the Bible starts that way, because not everything can be said about God in one statement. There ha- it has to be kind of balanced out in certain kinds of ways. So if you look at Genesis 1, you're probably all familiar with that account, where God creates by simply speaking things into existence. So Genesis 1 is that picture of God. And what is it? It's a picture of God in his sovereignty. God is a king. He's issuing these decrees. He speaks a word, and what he says comes into being. So there's this strong emphasis on God's power, his sovereignty, his control over the universe, what we might call his transcendence. The downside of that is that's a bit distant, okay? You know, it's nice to have a God who's all-powerful and a God who's sovereign and a God who's in control, but that can, at the same time, create a bit of a barrier, okay? A bit of a distance between us and God. And that's why we need this second picture that emerges in chapter 2, where we now see God as a, a gardener planting this garden, this Eden. And then what does he do? He gets down into the dirt of that garden, and he forms the human out of the dust, okay? And you have this image there. The the language that's used there is God like a potter forming the human out of the soil of the ground. And, of course, Adam, the human, the name Adam means like earth because the human is formed from the earth. But then also what do we see? We see God bending down and breathing life into the human. A friend of mine, he, he describes that as like the first kiss you have in the Bible because it, it really is this intimate image. I mean, we have this language of God breathing into the nostrils, but it could be just as easily be breathing into the mouth or sort of this kiss. And, and that's, an, that's, an, that's just as true of God, and that's an important picture to balance that first picture. Because here we see God as a nurturer, God as one who cares. We see this intimacy between God and his creation. We see the opposite of the transcendence is this imminence. God is close. And both of those pictures are important. We need the powerful God. We need the God who has control. 
But we also need the God who is the nurturer, the God who cares, the God who kisses, the God who breathes into us, that kind of thing. Likewise, we also have two pictures of humans in these two chapters. So think of how humans are described in chapter 1. They're made in the image of God, and they're given rule and dominion. And they, so again, they image God, they're, they're, humans are created as like vice regents. That's why this language of glory, think of Psalm 8, when the psalmist there is reflecting upon this first creation account. The psalmist talks about how God crowned humans with glory and honor. Okay, this language of crowning, this language of glory, this sort of kingship language. That's very aspirational. That, that tells us what we were created for. We were created to exercise authority over this creation, but again, in a way that's reflective of God's, of God's rule. A way that is, again, far too often as we noted, human rule, human authority, human governance oftentimes results in oppressive states of affairs, right? And the Bible's always critiquing that. There's nothing the Bible critiques more than failed human governance, okay? Uh, but that's all reflected in here. God, you know, God doesn't take away what God gives. God gave humans authority. He wishes, you know, the aspiration is that they would exercise authority and power in the ways that he would like, oftentimes, that doesn't happen, and that's where we end up with these problems. Uh, but nonetheless, Genesis 1 is important because it, it tells us the, God's goal for humans, God's aspirations for humans. But then when we turn to chapter 2, which we've already kind of looked at, what's the picture there? Well, we are made of very common stuff. We are, we're basically made of dirt, okay? Um, we are lowly. We are totally dependent. This picture... Our life is completely owed to God. It's God breathing into us. And, and it's not surprising that, what, that probably the, if you think of the virtue that Christians added to all the ancient virtues, so all, every ancient culture had its virtues, right? So think of the Greeks in particular, the, what we consider kind of the cardinal virtues. Those are all kind of developed already by the Greek age. The one thing that um, biblical faith and particularly Christian teaching added, you know, the distinctive Christian virtue is humility. You, know, you see that in Jesus. But part of that is reflective of chapter 2. We are, we are clay in the end, okay? We are simply common dirt that God, God breathes treasure into, okay? So again, we are this, think of Genesis 2, God breathes into this clay, and this is this treasure that we have in the midst of us. So another psalm, Psalm 103, there the um, psalmist says, you know, simply what? We are but dust, okay? This fragility and weakness of humanity, okay? So what you'll find is as you move throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament keeps coming back to those images. God as potter, people as clay, okay? And um, God's intention is to kind of form, you know, because God's goal is always that we would image him. So part of what God's doing is he's always forming and fashioning his people as clay so they can be more reflective of what he wants them to be. And, and that, you know, part of the positive side of being clay is we are pliable. 
We are impressionable. That's important because God, we're, we're not right now where we would want to be, okay? So it's kind of nice that we are like clay because what that reminds us of is that we are essential to what it means to be human is we are pliable. We can be fashioned. We can be shaped, okay? The downside is that we can be shaped in ways that are antithetical or opposite to what God would want. You know, it's interesting. You have that language of image right there at the very beginning, and that is God's goal for humans is that they would image him. Where do we, you know, that word image doesn't disappear in the Old Testament, but where we begin to find it reappearing is in this idea of a graven image or an idol, okay? Same kind of language, And idols, of course, as we see oftentimes in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, idols are the enemy, in that sense, of the people of God. Because what is an an idol, in a sense? An idol is ultimately something that shapes us in a direction other than God would want us to be in, okay? You know, so for example, you know, Idols weren't just an element of the ancient world. Idols are just as alive today as, as before. They have everything to do with, again, the stories we tell ourselves. Okay? So if, if the story we live by could be summarized in the phrase, money makes the world go around, then if that's your idol, if that's what shapes you, if that line, that narrative shapes you, then what's your life going to be about? What's going to be about possessions, it's going to be about paychecks, it's going to be about, uh, you know, buying newer things, better things, making more money, that kind of thing. That that is the idol that is now shaping your life. And what's happening is you're conforming now to that image rather than the image of God. Or another common idol in our day sort of goes, you know, the narrative or kind of encapsulated in a phrase would be, you know, you only live once, okay? We're only on this planet for a short time. Therefore, you might as well, you know, live large, get as much enjoyment, as much pleasure out of this life as possible. So a lot of people in our culture, that's, that's the story they live by. But that becomes the idol that shapes them. And so if they're, what happens over the course of a lifetime, you're shaped by the stories that you tell yourself. And those stories... The proper stories will lead us more in the direction of God. The improper stories will take us away from God. But again, that's the downside of being pliable. That's the downside of being impressionable, is we can be shaped by things other than God. Okay. But you know, there's something even worse, though, than being pliable um, or impressionable. And that's why in the Bible, you know, God's real anger is oftentimes directed towards what? Those who are stiff-necked, those who are hard of heart, okay? Because the, the pliable person who's moving in the wrong direction, at least they're still pliable. At least God can still get hold of them. But the problem with the person who's hardened themselves is they become impervious to any kind of change. You know, think of Paul's language in the passage we just read. A lot of people who, had gone through, who would have gone through that kind of affliction, that kind of suffering, that kind of setback, again, we see people all the time who, what, become embittered. They become hardened. They basically throw in the towel. They're still alive, but they don't have any joy left in life. Uh, that's a really hard condition to be in. Or somebody who's just become angry towards God. You know, we see a lot of people like that. Um, 
So as bad, as bad as it can be being as pliable, it's still a good thing in the Bible, even if you are kind of moving in the wrong direction, being pliable, at least you're still something God can work with. The hardened person is someone that uh, particularly is worrisome. Okay. But anyways, um, that's, sort of the, that's how the Old Testament kind of carries along that narrative. But let's move forward to the New Testament, and particularly Jesus, because what... What Jesus is doing, of course, is he's redeeming creation. God create, God the Father creates in the first place, but now God the Son comes, and the main task, you could say, of Jesus is to redeem creation. And we'll, we'll look at this under you know, in terms of, of John's gospel, because John really plays this up as far as Jesus' whole ministry being this new creation. In fact, think of how John opens his gospel in the beginning was the word. You have this echo of the opening line of Genesis, okay? So he signals to his reader right there that what this is all about, this story I'm going to be telling in this gospel is about a new creation that Jesus brings about. And just as there's the two pictures that we looked at before with Genesis 1 and 2, there's two interesting pictures I want us to look at in, um, in John's gospel. Um, the first is a healing that Jesus does. And this is in chapter 9, the healing of a blind man. And just as an aside, one thing you'll find distinctive of John is John, when he's describing the miracles of Jesus, the language he uses is sign. Okay? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the language of power is used. So when you, when you read about the miracles, the, the word that's behind that is powers. Jesus does these demonstrations of power because what's he doing? He's showing the power of the kingdom of God that is breaking in. Okay, um, John, he too shares miracles, but he gives them an entirely different label. He refers to them as signs. And this is because he wants, to, he wants his readers to recognize that these are pointers. These signify something. Okay? These tell us something important about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And the healing of the blind man is a classic example of this. Um, he is described as a man who's born blind. In other words, he's never, ever seen, okay? And many of these people in John's gospel are represented people. He kind of stands for all of us, in other words. This blind man kind of stands for every person, okay? Because there's a sense, and this is borne out in John's gospel, every one of us is born blind in the sense that John uses blindness metaphorically for what? Ignorance. We don't know God. Okay, we are the default. When we are born, we don't know God. Okay, um, and therefore we don't know how to live. We are ignorant about life. We are ignorant about God. We are ignorant about God's salvation. Okay, uh, so that's where this man is. It's interesting how Jesus heals him in this case. We see Jesus healing blind men throughout the Gospels in various ways. This is a unique case. What Jesus does is, again, he bends over. It's very, it's very reflective of Genesis 2. Jesus bends down. He spits into the ground, into the earth. He makes this little clay mud pack, okay? So he needs this clay, and what does he do? He puts it on the guy's eyes, okay? Because, again, that's the part of creation that hadn't really taken, you could say, with this guy. He's born blind. That's the part of creation that needs to be reset in this guy's case. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus sends him 
to a pool called Siloam. And then John, one of John's famous parenthetical statements, it's in parentheses, the word Siloam means sent. And what's interesting is by that point in John's gospel, it's very clear that Jesus himself is the sent one, okay? That's how Jesus oftentimes described in John's gospel, the one who is sent. So, so what does this all signify? What's the sign here? Well, the sign here is that all of us are like this man. We are all blind. We're kind of born blind. We have an ignorance. But Jesus comes to reset that. Jesus comes to recreate us in this sense. We can be you know, think of the language in, in John. We can be born again or born from above. Okay, there is this reset that is possible. But it's only possible through Jesus. You know, he's the one who makes the clay that he puts on the guy's eyes. He's the one who sends him to Siloam. And it's when the man washes his eyes that he can now see. Okay, so it's this great picture of what Jesus, what the redemptive activity of Jesus is really about. He comes to give us knowledge and insight and understanding about God and therefore about ourselves. Okay, a second important picture that also plays off of Genesis 2 is at the very end or near the very end of John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 22. This is on on the day that Jesus is raised from the dead. So his crucifixion has happened, he's died, he's been buried, but he's now raised. He appears to his disciples, and what does he do? He breathes on them, and he says to them, receive the Spirit. Okay. It's interesting, that the, the verb that's used there in that passage, Jesus breathes on them, only appears once in the New Testament. That's the only place you find that particular verb, okay? And it's, you find that verb only twice in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and one of those places is Genesis 2-7, when God breathes into the human, okay? So here we see Jesus. What we have here is, again, a picture of Jesus bringing about this major reset, Okay? We've all kind of drifted. We've become blind. Our lives have become pointless. We're just essentially walking in the dark. But Jesus' coming is all about, through his death and resurrection, offering us all a reset. Okay, And that's demonstrated through this breathing. And what does he say when he breathes on them? Receive the Spirit. Okay, So now we come back to Paul. And... This think of the passage we started with, um, where he starts off talking about the Spirit. You know, where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. And it's the Spirit that brings about change in our lives. One thing I like about Paul, Paul, Paul's very much attracted to this kind of what we could call morph language, okay? Um, you know, Maybe you remember there was on TV. I remember when my boys were really young, a very popular program on television was the, uh, what, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, right? <laughs> With that word morph in there, because they, they tra- there's the, these teenagers who basically transform into these superheroes. And even think of Transformers, how popular that was. So we're kind of, but morph is just simply that Greek word that relates to, well, morph means form. And so Paul does all this play on that kind of language, transform, conform, 
You know, he'll do all these variations on this morph kind of language. And that's a characteristic of Paul's theology. No other uh, writer of scripture uses this morph language more often than Paul does. So he's very much, Paul's very much about transformation and the potential that all of us have for transformation because of the spirit that Jesus breathes into us. So think of, you know, in, in, in Romans 8.29, you've got that, that famous statement where God, you know, the, the, the spirit conforms us. You know, God through the spirit conforms us to the image of his son. Later in Romans in 12.2, Paul makes that famous statement. He says to the Romans, you know, stop conforming to this age. You know, stop conforming to the patterns of this age. Again, that idolatry idea we talked about before. Stop conforming to that. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Okay. You know, we just read it in Corinthians. You know, all of us are currently being transformed, Paul says, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Again, what's he getting at this one degree of glory to another? We're, we're getting, as we conform to the image of Christ, we're getting back more to that aspirational, those, those aspirations God had for us, where we can begin to live our lives effectively and powerfully in the way that God would want us to. And Paul goes on to say this all comes from the Lord, the Spirit. It's the Spirit that makes this possible. You know, in, in Galatians, Paul says to the Galatians church that his ambition for them is to see Christ formed in them. Okay, so in other words, Paul uses this language, you know, we just scratched the surface, Paul used this language over and over and over again throughout his um, letters. Paul sees Jesus as the perfect image of God. You know, we have, we as humans have really kind of distorted the image of God in ourselves, just because oftentimes we are more shaped by idolatries than we are by God himself. But the good news is we have in Jesus this perfect image of God, okay? And that's why discipleship is all about following, or what Paul will oftentimes say is imitate. Imitate Christ. And as you're doing that, as you're kind of following Christ, we can have confidence that the Spirit is active in our lives, transforming us into that image of Christ, okay? Um, so, so again, we might find ourselves in situations like Paul describes here, where life seems to be just too hard, too difficult, there's too many frustrations, there's too many curveballs, there's too many disappointments. And Paul was, and part of the reason why he focuses on those negative things is those are the very places, because oftentimes it's in those places that we can actually see the hope. You know, as Paul says later in 2 Corinthians, it's when I'm weakest that I can feel the strength of God more effectively. That's why I think he focuses here on these negative aspects of life. But even in the midst of those moments, we can sense that transformative power of the Spirit of God in our lives. Um, the Spirit is constantly breathing hope into us, constantly transforming us into the people that God would want us to be. You know, it's interesting, he ends that section, as we read earlier, he ends that by saying that we always carry in our bodies the death of Jesus so that 
the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. And this echoes something Paul says in Philippians 3.10, where Paul says, you know, his, his goal, Paul says there, is to know Christ. Okay. And he goes on to say, goes on to unpack that. What does it mean to know Christ? Well, it means two things. To know the power of his resurrection, but to also what? Share in his sufferings, but by becoming like him in his death. Okay. There's that. And that's why for Paul, we simultaneously carry in us the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our lives. You know, on Friday night... um, we're talking about Matthew and kind of more discipleship in Matthew. But one thing I shared uh, with the group on Friday night is one thing that's sort of, you know, it's funny how yeah, I've been in this sort of Bible teaching thing for, I don't know, 35 years or whatever. But um, it's funny how some, thing, you know, how some things are just, they're always there, but you never really give them the attention they deserve. And one thing that's just really, God's just really made me be much more attentive to just in the last couple of years is the whole concept of repentance, because I think oftentimes what happens in our Christian lives is there's this failure to launch, this failure to really, yeah, really effectively move forward in the Christian life because the process gets short-circuited at the beginning. There isn't this repentance. And one helpful way to understand this repentance, Paul's basically talking about repentance when he talks about sharing in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Repentance is really about, as Paul would say, dying to that old nature. You know, when Paul describes baptism, what is baptism is about? What's baptism is this symbol of repentance and entering into new life. But it starts with what? This immersion into the water or this dying to the old person in order to rise up to this new life in Christ. And... And it's interesting, especially in Luke's theology, repentance itself is this work of the Spirit. It's, it, we can't, we're not even capable of repenting properly. We need the Spirit to breathe, in a sense, repentance in us so we can truly die, so we can truly throw off that old person with all the idolatries that accrue to that and fully enter into that new life that Christ promises us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the treasures that are in your word. We thank you for this treasure of your spirit that you've breathed into our lives. We want to, we want to repent of the idolatries that we have uh, been drawn to in the course of our lives. We want to repent of those the times we've been pliable in the wrong ways, where we've allowed other things to shape and influence us that draw us away from who you are. We want to repent of those things, and we want to just allow the Spirit of Christ to do a reset in our lives. We want to feel daily that encouragement and that hope that comes from your Spirit. We want to walk strongly in the hope that no matter what difficulties life might present us with, the one thing that's always constant, the one thing that's always true to us is this hope that we have in you. We thank you for that treasure. We thank you for that confidence. We thank you for that strength. And we just thank you for the aspiration also that you pour into our lives, that we can always move in those directions that are pleasing to you. We ask all of this in the name of your Son and through the Spirit. 
In Jesus' name, amen.